Well, good morning. Thank you for being with us this morning. It's always a pleasure to just be with God's people here at Coastway. Sometimes I'm here, over there, who knows where, and today I stand here, but what's always constant is, is you, you all. I see you, and I know you. We work alongside with one another. Uh, you tell me you pray for me, and I pray for you, and there's this thing happening amidst us. It's called the church being the church, and I'm really thankful for everyone here. I can't think of a place I'd rather be. As we open our Bibles, Pastor Jeremy mentioned we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, so we can go ahead and turn there and scroll down to verse 43 where we're going to continue our Firm Foundation sermon series with the Firm Foundation of Service. And uh, speaking of service, I'm going to try something. I want to get a little bit of audience participation, and I want you to raise your hand if you've ever heard of the term servant leadership. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that term. Okay, a good number of you. Now, of those of you who've heard of it, do you know where it came from? Raise your hand if you know where it came from. If you're online, we had hands raised for the first question, no hands raised for the second, right? You don't know, and I'll just tell you, the term was coined by a gentleman by the name of Robert K. Greenleaf in an essay he wrote in 1970 directed at the business community. Now, unless you went to business school, and some of you probably have, or unless you lead a large company, it's likely you've never had reason to read his essay, yet you've heard the phrase, why? Well, it's because it's been infused into the leadership cultures of some of the most influential companies in the world. Companies like Starbucks, Marriott, Chick-fil-A have all taken this seriously and infused it into their corporate cultures. It struck a nerve so deeply into the business community that even now retailers and restaurants are teaching it to their line managers. It's, an imp- it's a powerful thing that you've heard of, but you don't know where it came from. And one thing we can realize about this is that Greenleaf, as innovative as this idea was, was not thinking with original thoughts. He, like the rest of us, was breathing the air of another shift in ideas that took place 200 years before he wrote his essay, and it's best represented by the American Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution. And what Greenleaf said was that great organizations don't exploit their employees Great organizations serve them and inspire their productivity. What the American founders said is that great nations don't exploit their citizens, but they protect their rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and in so doing, serve them and produce loyalty and flourishing through that. But even the founders, they weren't novel thinkers. They got their ideas from somewhere else. They were living in the light of things like the Protestant Reformation, the English Magna Carta, the Christianization of Rome, this growing Christian consensus that's waning today, unfortunately, in the West. And ultimately, the biggest influence on all of that was this little movement we know as the church. And of course, the church itself gets all the good ideas we get from Jesus Christ. So here we are, Jesus Christ. And thankfully, Mark captured Jesus' words on this very topic in Mark chapter 10, which is where we're going to be today. So with eager anticipation, I want to direct us to Mark chapter 10, verse 43, second half of it, which says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here Jesus tells us the secret to greatness. 
1,800 years before the founders applied it to government and nearly 2,000 years before Greenleaf applied it to business. It would then follow that if service leads to greatness, we probably want to know what it means to be a servant. Thankfully, Jesus, he's got us covered. And so we're going to get into it here in Mark chapter 10. But before we do, I'm going to give you the sermon in one sentence, and it's this. True greatness can only be achieved through selfless service that embraces the calling to be like Jesus. It's selfless service that embraces the calling to be like Jesus. So as we go into this, I want us to first look at that big first idea. Number one this morning, a true servant is selfless. What does it really mean to be selfless, you might ask? All Jesus' words in Mark chapter 10, even before we get to the story we're going to read today, chip away piece by piece at the self. And they reveal much that I'll briefly review before we get into our main text. So a brief overview, I'm not going to read it all, but if you look at Mark chapter 10, you'll notice that the first 12 verses talk a little bit about marriage. And oftentimes we think that it's talking about divorce and that that's the main thrust of that text. And it's certainly important. But if you look closely and if you don't miss the point, what is Jesus saying about marriage? It's that we will be a better partner to the person we're married to if self gets out of the way. You get to verse 13 and we see Jesus dealing with his disciples who think they're doing him a favor by keeping kids out of his hair. What does he say? Let the children come to me for of this, of these children, that's what the kingdom of God's going to be made of. What is he saying? He's letting the disciples know and all of us through them that kids don't exist just to stay out of our hair. How many of us need to hear that this morning? I know I do above all, right? <laughs> Some of you know why. Um, I've got a lot of kids. Uh, but in, in short, what is Jesus saying here? Whether in parenting, serving in Coastway kids, or any other place you might interact with children, they don't exist to serve you. You're going to be a better servant to the next generation if self gets out of the way. So he deals with kids. He deals with marriage. He also deals with money. He's hitting all the sensitive topics. Verse 17, a rich young man comes to Jesus. He says, I've done everything right, but even he knows something's still missing, and Jesus knows what it is. It's his relationship to money. And oftentimes we read that, and we get scared of what Jesus is asking us to do, but we can't miss the point. The point is this. You were not given whatever means you have, whether little or much, primarily to serve your needs. You will be a better steward of the money that God's given you if self gets out of the way. So self has to get out of the way of our money, and finally it has to get out of the way with how we deal with truth. Verses 32 to 34 show Jesus in the height of his ministry. He's doing miracles, he's preaching, and people don't know what to do with him. Jesus is someone that some are excited about, some are afraid of, and it doesn't help that he's talking about doing this thing called dying. He's going to suffer, and he's going to die and be raised. This doesn't make sense to people, and this would trouble people in our day too, right? If you think about it, the message of the cross, the necessity of the cross is offensive to someone who doesn't think they have any sin that needs to be died for. Furthermore, people look at God pouring out his wrath on Jesus, and they, they get uncomfortable with that, even though this text and many others clearly state that the way Jesus saved us was by taking our punishment and absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf so that we could be free and that we could live and have eternal life. And so what we find in this is that we, we will be able to 
handle the truth better if self gets out of the way. So self's got to get out of the way of our marriages. It's got to get out of the way of our parenting. It's got to get out of the way of our financial planning. And it's got to get out of the way of how we handle the truth. The question might arise, is there anything left (laughs) for me to keep to myself? And what Jesus says, and I'll paraphrase it, it's greatness or it's selfishness. There's not room for both. And when we get to our main story in verse 35, we're going to see what happens when self doesn't get out of the way. It's not a pretty picture. So let's begin reading in verse 35. Verse 35, we see James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, this is Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's an interesting request, maybe a little cringy. Let me make it worse for you. Matthew chapter 20 captures the detail Mark doesn't. They had their mother go up to Jesus on their behalf. And what we see from this, right, they go up to him and say, hey, we want you to do something for us, but they're not going to tell him, right? Selfishness always has an angle. And that's something that is not going to be helpful to us. We go on and we look at verse 36, and Jesus says, hey, you know what, I'm going to play along. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Wow, okay. Now, scholars are unified in thinking that when James and John came up to Jesus and made this request, they were actually trying to edge out Peter. Peter was the oldest. Peter was probably the most vocal. Peter had gotten a lot right in the past. And here James and John recognizing Peter might be on the cusp of being the second-hand man to the king. And they got something right, right? They got it right that Jesus was going to come into his own glory, but what they didn't get right is what the path would look like. And here they are being extremely presumptuous, assuming way less than what it was going to take to get them to greatness. And Jesus is about to let them in on that bad news. And so they said, hey, we want to sit one at your right hand, one at your left in your glory. And Jesus says to them, you do not know what you're asking. Of course, right? You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm being baptized? And here we see them immediately say, yes, Lord, we are able. What do we see happening here? They're underestimating the cost. Because what they didn't catch is what Jesus meant by cup and baptism. As we've already talked about, Jesus was preparing to drink the cup of God's wrath in payment for sin. And in so doing, be brought down to the grave and brought back up in resurrection. Something analogous to baptism. That's why we do it by immersion. And this is what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about this mystery of the gospel that we'll talk about more later But their prideful response indicates that they do not understand the cost that that Jesus is about to pay and that would be required of them if they want to be great. Selfishness underestimates the cost. We get to verse 39. What does he say there? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. Uh Uh-oh. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. What has just happened? They've underestimated the cost 
and they overestimated the amount of control that they could have over what greatness looks like. They've got a specific idea about greatness. To them, it's one on the right, one on the left in Christ's glory. What is your specific idea of greatness? Are you pursuing that with that in mind as if there's no other way that God wants to work greatness in your life? One thing that we need to reckon with and one thing that selfishness keeps us from reckoning with is that we're not in control of that. And also, our ideas aren't as good as God's ideas about greatness or anything else. So selfishness hides that from us. And in verse 41, we see that James and John are not alone in this. Verse 41, we look at verse 41 and it says, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. What do we see happening? Conflict and pettiness. Selfishness is always going to bring that. And so what do we see in all of this, right? Jesus saw something, and he stopped them right there. And in verse 42, he begins to teach them. It says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. What does selfishness do to us? It makes us content to be just like the world. So what do we see in all this about selfishness? Selfishness can wreck our lives, and it will not help us move toward greatness like service will. But there's something else you should know. The opposite of selfishness, selflessness, is really difficult. In those same verses, we can go back and we can see a couple things. Verse 39, Jesus says, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. What's he saying? A selfless servant is willing to suffer. In verse 40, he reminds them, hey, it's not me. I don't get to decide who's going to sit at my right and who at my left. That's being prepared by the Father. We see, secondly, a selfless servant doesn't seek his own glory. Selfless servant doesn't presume upon a specific type of glory that we might achieve for ourselves. Selfless servant is willing to allow God to handle those details. And then finally, we see in verses 42 and 43, where Jesus says to them, hey, the Gentiles do it this way, but it will not be so among you. What he's saying, the Gentiles in this case represent the world. He's saying that a selfless servant must be countercultural. You know another word for countercultural that we might all really get? It's weird. Jesus is calling us to be weird. But don't miss what I'm saying here. You don't have to dress weird or talk weird or do your hair weird or live weirdly to be considered weird to our world. Just serve people. That's weird enough, right? And the Bible calls us to this. When Jesus says, but it shall not be so among you, he's doing the same thing that I do with my kids sometimes. When they say, Dad, I want to do X, Y, Z, all the kids at school are doing it. And I say, well, they're not my kids. You're my kids. We're going to do it a certain way. And that's the message God has for those who are selfless servants. So selfless servanthood is difficult. But the selfless servant can endure because it's not about us. None of it is. Selflessness demands that I get as much of me out of the ways as possible and allow the Holy Spirit to work through service in me the greatness that he has in store for me. Nonetheless, the difficulty of all this, it makes it clear to us that service is is something that requires a heavy commitment. And that gets us to the second major idea 
for today that a true servant embraces it as a calling. If we're going to be able to suffer through service with no guarantee of glory and to be countercultural, weird, we cannot just add service as an accessory to our lives. Service is not a belt. It's the whole wardrobe for the Christian. It is something that we cannot just sprinkle. We need to be totally embracing it. It must be our vocation. It must be our identity. It's a calling. And so we're going to see this in two ways. First, you can see it already on the screen. We're going to see this service as a vocation. And we're going to look at verses 43. We read them already, but I'll read them again, starting in the middle of it. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. The word servant right there in verse 43 comes from the same Greek word that gives us the English word for deacon, which is an ordained office in the church, or at least that's how we understand the word most normally. And the word simply means to wait tables. And it answers the question, what does a servant do? A servant waits tables, or to make it a little bit more applicable to us all, a servant is there to serve the needs of whoever happens to be in front of them at any given point in time. So that's what a servant does. From this, we understand that service is our vocation, right? Are you used to answering the question, what do you do with an answer like this? I'm an engineer, I'm a teacher, I'm a nurse, I'm a doctor, I'm a barista, I'm a student, These are the ways we think to answer this question. And for the Christian, the answer to that question is, I'm a servant. And so that's what we mean by service as vocation. And be clear, Jesus isn't speaking to ordained deacons exclusively here, right? Jesus is speaking to every Christian. What does a Christian do? What is our vocation? We are servants. We serve others. You need to be like Big Al. Do you guys know who Big Al is? We'll get a picture of him up here. Big Al was a little leaguer a few years back. And Big Al, you know, the ESPN always does this thing where they introduce the little leaguer, and they get to say their name, their position, and then something, something interesting about themselves. And this is what Big Al said. Big Al said, my, my friends call me Big Al, and I hit dingers. If you don't know what a dinger is, it's a home run. Big Al hits dingers. And Big Al, he was right, you know, he wasn't fast. He wasn't a particularly good glove. He didn't pitch. He was on that all-star team for one thing, to hit dingers. And man, did he hit dingers. So, what does Big Al do? Big Al hits dingers. What do Christians do? Christians serve others. Big Al knows his vocation. Do we know ours? It's that simple. Service is our vocation, but we also see uh, in verse 44 that there's more to it. Look at verse 44. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That's another word, slave. What does this tell us? It helps us understand that service isn't just our vocation, but service is our identity. I want to acknowledge a few things for this. First of all, the Greek word for slave, you know what it means? Slave, we understand it. It means the same thing today as it would have meant 200 years ago and 2,000 years ago. It means slave. And it doesn't answer the question of what a servant does so much as it answers the question of who is the servant. It's a matter of not just vocation, 
but identity. This reminds us, of course, of America's past with slavery, which was shameful. And for some, it's really hard to think about. But understand this. Jesus, when he gave this, knew what would happen in America. He knew the Civil War would happen. He knew the reasons for it. And he knew the pain that people would still be dealing with from it for hundreds of years after. Yet he still calls us to be slave of all. Because for Jesus, it's not a white or a black thing, a rich or a poor thing, a strong or a weak thing. It's a Christian thing. And so what we have the opportunity to do is to recognize that the servant of Christ is slave of all. Now, how do we need to think about that? That's a hard thing. Let me acknowledge that out loud. That's really hard for us to accept, that we have to voluntarily assume the identity of a slave. Think about it this way. We assume the bottom rung on the societal caste system voluntarily and joyfully because what the world doesn't know is we get to call the God of the universe our father. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He clothes the lilies and the birds. His son is literally right now, what Jesus is doing, why he's not here and you're talking to me instead is because he's preparing a place for you. And one day he's gonna receive you to himself in his father's house. We do not have any need for status on this earth. We've got all the status we need waiting for us in heaven. And it's real. And this is what allows us to submit ourselves to be slave of all in this world. Now, what this doesn't mean is that I need to go live in squalor, that I need to uh, forsake things that wouldn't be available to slaves, things like education, whatever it might be. What it does mean is that my impulse in every interaction I have with another person is to serve their needs no matter who they are or why we've met. Philippians 2.3, Paul gives us this, and I think it gives us the sense of what Jesus is asking. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is service as identity. This is what it means to be slave of all. So we have service as vocation, service as identity. Together they give us service as a calling. So the true servant is selfless. The true servant sees it as a calling. But for all the suffering and humility and all this, aren't you glad it's taking us somewhere? We are not left unchanged. We are changed. We're transformed. We're molded. But into what? And that's what our last big thought of the day is all about. A true servant becomes like Jesus. Now, there are three types of people that might be in the room today. There are those who don't serve. There are those who serve. And there are some of us who haven't yet connected with the act of service that Jesus has done on our behalf. And I think verse 45 has something to say to all three groups. And I'm going to close by taking some time to apply this to each of us as we look at verse 45. So let's read it. It says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Three, three applications. They're glorious. Let's look at what he says there. For those who don't serve, I want to speak to you first. What we are told is that Jesus is your example for service. We see this in the beginning of verse 45. He tells them, be a servant, be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus is our model for service. He doesn't leave us to our imagination as to what service might be. He goes on and demonstrates it for us. And one thing I found out is that Mark 10.45 is listed and considered by all the scholars to be the key verse of Mark, which means if you want to see this expanded, go read the whole book of Mark. If, even if you're a slow reader, you could read it in one setting in two hours. But read a chapter a day in about two weeks or so, you'll have read the whole thing. And you will see Jesus' example of service. And Paul captures it in Philippians chapter 2 as well. Going back to it, in verse 5, it says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is all of this telling us? Service is standard issue equipment for the Christian. If you are not growing, if you're not thriving, you know, I read the Bible, I pray, I go to church, I'm still dry. I'm still hollow. What's missing? Could it be that the thing that's missing is service? Take an account of a day. How much of your day is spent doing things for yourself, thinking about yourself, your own plans, your own needs, your own wants? How about we diversify? Let's serve a little bit. Let's do something for someone else. It could be that the one thing missing from your faith journey is service. The only way to become great and selflessly embrace service as your calling then is to imitate Jesus who then uses your service to make you more like himself. Service is both how we honor him and how we thrive. Christian, if you're not serving, what, what are you waiting for? Where could you serve? Could it be that Coastway Church is where you could serve. That next step for you, it might look like attending the next weekender. Some of you who have attended a weekender, what it might look like is taking that next step of commissioned membership. Wherever you're at in that journey today, I hope that the Lord will help you reflect and see that service is the path to greatness. And whatever that next step looks like, won't you commit to taking that today? But then there's some of you who don't know, and this is that what you don't know, that you are already the object of Jesus' service. You see, nothing motivates me more than to know that the service Christ performed that we're to imitate is a service that was done toward us. We imitate Christ's service to us. Look at verse 45 again, the second part. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Bound up in that word ransom is this great mystery of the gospel, the exchange of my sin for the righteousness of God. I sinned, but he took it. He was righteous, but I got it. And then he took my sin and he absorbed it by drinking the cup of God's wrath and dying and resurrecting. 
in my place. What's happening there? Jesus is serving us. And when we look that deeply into it, we realize that the best reason we have to embrace service as a calling is because we've already received the ultimate benefit of service from Jesus Christ himself. Why should not we respond to this? My mind is drawn to Isaiah 53, a prophecy 700 years before Jesus came, and it says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. This morning, some of you, this is your starting point. It's time to take seriously the work that Jesus has done to redeem you from the sin and brokenness that you can't let go of. You hesitate because that sin, that brokenness, it has power over you that you can't shake, but Jesus does not ask you to shake it. Think about it this way. Paul said in Romans 5.8 that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If he didn't wait for you to get right before dying for your sin, why do we think we've got to fix our lives before we come to him and surrender our lives to him? Jesus doesn't ask that much of you. He says, come as you are. I'll change you. I'll help you. I will help you get victory over the brokenness in your life and find hope in following me. That's what Jesus offers you. Place your faith in Jesus today and he will empower you to conquer your sin and brokenness over time in this process we call sanctification. And if you do, if that's you, and this morning you're realizing for the very first time, you, I get it. I now understand the gospel and I understand it's for me and I feel accepted because I know what Jesus did for me. And the weight of my sin is gone. I don't know how I'm going to handle it. Life's still going to be hard, but now I've got a hope I didn't have just a few minutes ago. What might be happening to you if that's you? It's called conversion. You're being brought from death to life. And the next step for you is to tell somebody about it. And I can't think of a better way to tell somebody else about that than to be baptized. Good news is we're going to be doing a baptism service on March 31st on Easter. And you can tell us about it in any number of ways. You can go to the website, coastwaychurch.com slash baptism. You can sign up to have a conversation about it there. I personally think it'd be better to tell somebody about it right here today. In a moment, we're going to sing. And if you want to come forward, we'll have our care team folks up at the front. And if this is what's happened to you, tell somebody about it. If you're not comfortable doing that, out at the tent, hey, I want to be baptized. The Lord's done something in my heart today. I'm a new person. I'm not the same. You can talk to him about the tent. You'll get next steps, clarity on that. We just want that to be the first step for you. But I reserve the final application for those who do serve. Coastway Church is held up by the power of the Holy Spirit with many, many hands. Hands that load and unload trucks. Hands that set up stages and set up spaces for Coastway kids. Faces that smile as we welcome guests. And a host of many other things that many of us will never, ever see. I'm speaking to you right now. To those of you who pray for our leaders and for one another. For those of you who host and lead community groups. 
There's a danger that we have to forget why we serve and the power from which we serve. And we can't miss the point of all this. The firm foundation of service isn't just service for service's sake. It has meaning. It's taking us somewhere. It's service that leads to greatness. And in that last part of Philippians 2, which I've referenced multiple times, we see that at the end of Jesus' suffering, his humility, his service, verse 9 tells us that God highly exalted him. And what do we learn from that is that whatever greatness looks like for you and me, it is worked in us through our service. And those who serve, I beg of you, do not grow weary. I think of everyone in this room and I think of my brothers and sisters and Coastway kids right now who may not hear about this until they watch it later. Do not grow weary in well-doing. For if you do not, you will reap if you faint not. Be encouraged by Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It may not feel light. It may not feel momentary. But in the context of that eternal weight of glory, it very much is. For those of you who serve, I want you to know that's not a wish. That's not a hope. That's a promise. That's a promise you can count on. Don't lose heart. Keep serving. Let me pray for you. Father, there are those of us who aren't serving that need to serve, and we need to commit to that today. There are those of us who serve and are tired and weary, and we need to be refilled with joy and purpose today. And there are, there are those of us today who might for the first time realize that Jesus has served us in such a profound way. And I pray, God, that in whatever way we need to respond as we sing, as our care team comes forward and is ready to help guide people through their thoughts, I pray that you would work in all of our hearts and stir us to see the power, the greatness that can be seen through a selfless service that embraces the calling to follow Jesus and to be like him. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your example. And thank you, Lord, for serving us the way you have. We are so grateful. And we're honored that you would share that burden with us in some small way by allowing us to serve and by using it to make us like yourself. Help us today as we continue. Bless Coastway Church. Enlarge our ministry. Give us a building and builders and the budget that we need to be here for 150, 200 years proclaiming the gospel and making a difference in our city. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.